Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. A key component of my Right Fit Method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Mary Beth Garber, is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Mary Beth and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They compete with themselves, raising the bar higher and higher. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health, and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting this and that. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a rat-infested barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rat-infested rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show. And after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, Mary Beth Garber, the president of the Southern California Broadcasters Association, known as SCBA, since 1998. Garber serves 
as a consultant for 62 stations in Los Angeles, the biggest radio market in the world in terms of dollars. Garber has been recognized as Broadcaster of the Year by Radio Inc. Magazine and received the Jenny Award for Excellence in Radio by American Women in Radio and Television. She has also been named as one of the 20 most influential women in radio by Radio Inc. every year for the past 10. During her presidency at SCBA, Garber has co-produced, in conjunction with Arbitron, three behavioral studies about media usage. Garber has also created and produced the Virtual Neighborhoods of Radio, which she has presented to advertisers, marketing groups, and broadcasters across the country. The Virtual Neighborhood concept has changed the attitudes of programmers and on-air personalities toward listeners and advertisers. Garber has been the keynote speaker for Chambers of Commerce and American Advertising Federation and for the American Women in Radio and Television chapters nationwide, teaching them how to succeed through the creation of local virtual neighborhoods. During the last 10 years, Garber has also trained over 600 radio salespeople through her Southern California Broadcasters University courses, changing how sellers position radio and prospect for clients. Prior to joining SCBA, Garber had a distinguished advertising and broadcast career in Los Angeles. She held senior media positions at Shiat Day and Foote, Cone, and Belding. Her radio experience includes local sales and management for CBS and ABC radio stations and Intercept Radio. At Walt Disney Studios, she worked on the client side of the advertising business for two years as VP Broadcast Media for Buena Vista Pictures Marketing. Garber is active in community service, having served as both trustee and board member for numerous organizations throughout Los Angeles. Join me as I uncover how Garber orchestrated a record attendance at Disneyland by featuring Radio Day with over 40 stations participating. Welcome, Mary Beth, to Win Without Competing. Thank you, Dr. Barrow. Where did you grow up, and how would you describe your home environment? I pretty much grew up everywhere. My father was in the Army, and we lived in many countries. In fact, by the time I was nine, I had lived in nine countries. So home life was um, constantly on the move. By the time you were in the 12th grade, you had attended 15 schools. How did you feel about that? When that is your life and everyone around you is living the same life, it, it doesn't seem strange at all. It seems as if that's what people do. 
And so until I got to high school, when I realized that that really isn't what the normal person does, it just never bothered me. It sounds as if when you were very young, you learned to be flexible. You had to be flexible. There was no other way. When you were living in a country in which you did not speak the language at all, in fact, where they didn't even have television, um, where on, on a daily basis you were not likely to hear your own language or the home language, you have to be flexible. You have to learn how to accept other cultures, um, other ethnicities. You have to be able to vamp. What did your dad do? Because I know that that was the reason why you were constantly traveling. It had to do with his own career. Yes, my father was in the Army, and um, I eventually learned that what my father was really in was military intelligence, or at least the entire time we were growing up. And so that really made things interesting. Um, It was not really uncommon to be awakened at about 4 o'clock in the morning and be told, okay, we're going to go on a trip. We are. Yes, we've got all your school books packed, and we're going to go on an adventure. And we would leave, um, usually accompanied by some very large men who were driving us. And we would go on a trip. We'd be gone for a week, sometimes two. But when you were a child, you didn't know that your dad was in military intelligence, correct? No, these were just fun trips. I had no idea. Uh, Although I did at one point turn to dad and say, you know, dad, every place you've scheduled us for vacations, they have wars. Ah, so you were perceptive. You recognized there was a pattern going on. Well, after they canceled three vacations because people had coups. <laughs> now, later on in the interview, I want to pick up more uh, because I know it isn't until you're an adult that your dad really confided in you as to what was going on. So I'm sure us, our listeners will be eager to hear more a bit later. Now, your mother was a nurse. Yes. And... Do you think she knew what was going on? I know she knew what was going on. Ah, okay. So she just went along with it all. Yes. She had to agree to do all of that. And your grandmother apparently had an influence on you. What was that? Um, She was a very individual person, and her home became the center of our universe, so that as we traveled from place to place, because even if that is the only thing you know, it's it's a little bit disconcerting. You really don't feel as if you have roots, but Grandma's house was roots. And my entire life, I could rattle off her address, I still can, and whenever we came home from any of the foreign countries or, or any place else, that's where we went. And so that became the constant in my life. Recently, I met the legendary actress Leslie Caron and heard her speak about her memorable career and life moments. She said that your childhood is forever. What do you carry with you daily from your childhood? She's quite right. 
you carry everything with you. How you think of yourself, how you go through life, how you go through a day, how you relate to people really does go back to your childhood. Fortunately, my parents were very strong, confident individuals who instilled that same feeling in in both of us, uh, both of their children, and encouraged us to think on our own, to do on our own, and to believe in ourselves. How old were you when you really viewed yourself as independent and self-confident? Probably three. That early? I mean, that, that's well, amazing. Um, I, I don't actually ever remember not being like that. And I have to tell you, when I was about four, um, the household was extremely upset because I decided I was running away from home, and I did. So I went marching out. Of course, this was in the middle of Japan. Ah, you were marching out in the middle of Japan. Now, uh-huh. why did you decide you wanted to leave home? Oh, I don't know. Probably they didn't want to do something I wanted them to do. And so this was the way I was going to get out. And I just packed everything up and just marched out of the house with God knows what. It's amazing. My father had to send the MPs after me. It's truly incredible how you took charge at such a young age. Because most children would be afraid to do that. No, I don't think I was ever afraid. I'm wondering, what do you think your parents did so that you would not be fearful? I I believe it's that they themselves, if they were fearful, and I'm, I'm sure at some point or another they were, and as I grew up, of course, I experienced that, but that they never really showed that to us, and that as we would come with problems, Oh my God! My dad, you know, was just the problem solver of the world, and he would sit us down and say, "Okay, read the problem before you push the panic button." Okay, and I don't know. From the time we were probably five, we had to come to him not just with problems but with solutions. When you grow up like that, what are your choices? But that's outstanding yes. because there are many adults that can't do what you did as a child. I mean, they really prepared you to function by yourself at a very young age. I they guess did. Re- recognizing in the event something would happen because of your father's position. Mhm. Probably. You were, um, yeah. Yes, you I mean, so. I think you were extremely fortunate. I remember as a child that my dad told me Never to be fearful, because if I started early in life to be fearful, I would always be fearful. You know, not to think about nonsense like, you know, the weather. Who cares? You can't control it. He taught me to control or to manage the process of that which I could control. Yes. And when you learn that, it really lifts a big burden. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. It was my mother's mantra. Change the things you can change. Don't worry about the rest of it. Absolutely. 
what did you like to do as a child? I grew up in a time when the choices for women were really quite limited. Um, I was pretty much allowed to think that I could be a nurse or a mother or a teacher, um, and there weren't a whole lot of other choices that were really open to us at that point. But in preparation for your career, um, did you enjoy reading? What did you What did you think about, and what entertained you when you were growing up? Remember, I grew up in a lot of countries where there wasn't television, and certainly not television in English, if if it even existed in in those markets. Um, and so, I had to find other ways to entertain myself. My favorite was reading. And I still remember a number of the books that I read and have read them to my son and my grandson. Ah, okay. Because that also took you into another, other worlds as well. Yes. My parents began reading to me when I was very, very young. And then it was so great when I could take the book and read to them. You became passionate about radio when you were a child. Tell us about that. Again, I was um, not around television, and so what I would do, what we did have was Armed Forces Radio, and they would play things like The Lone Ranger. I didn't know The Lone Ranger was a television show until I was about 11, because I hadn't ever seen it. But I had heard it on the radio, and so to me, the radio was this world of entertainment that would... Um, put me to sleep at, at night and entertain me sometimes during the day when um, there wasn't really anyone else around, and I wanted some companionship. As I got older, uh, I actually won a magazine con- selling contest and came home with my very own radio. This was when I was preteen, and so that's when the world of music just really opened up for me, and the radio was that conduit. I know when I was living in Israel, given that I didn't speak Hebrew, I was forever listening to uh, the radio station that was in English. And that made me very comfortable and connected to the U.S. So I can relate to what you're saying about the importance of radio. Of course, I was an adult at this time, but nevertheless, the concept is still the same. I don't think it ever changes. I don't think it matters how old you are or where you are. If you are in a foreign country, hearing your own native tongue is very reassuring. Oh, there's no no question. Now, you decided to go to Pitzer College. Tell us about Pitzer College, where it's located, and why you selected that particular college recognizing that you had initially some thoughts about where you would be going with your career, but Pitzer did something for you to change that. When I decided I was going to college, I had decided I was going to have a psychology major and be a clinical psychologist. And so I began looking around. Now, Pitzer College is, relatively speaking, a brand-new college. 
and it was it didn't exist until my freshman year. So it really was a brand new college built with brand new concepts. It's in the Claremont Colleges, which have some very old established colleges to them, Pomona College, Scripps College, Claremont McKenna College, the Graduate School, and uh, Harvey Mudd, which is a, a very scientific college. And so they decided they would come up with Pitzer College, which was at the time going to be an all-women's college. And it was, I think, for its first five years and then became co-ed. It was brand new. And when I discussed it with uh, my mentor and, and teacher who ran the speech and debate program at Campbell High, where I went to high school, he said, you know, this reads like you. Very independent, startup, innovative, go where you want to go. And I agreed, and so I applied, and they decided that I fit. You were the right fit for them. You matched the right blueprint. Mm-hmm. How was that experience? Because I know you changed your mind about psychology. When I got to Pitzer, I ran into one of the treasures that Pitzer College has, which is its professors. There was a woman there named Esther Wagner who was just a remarkable woman, just remarkable. And she pretty much took me under her wing, and I explained to her in that way that 18-year-olds do, that I was going to become a clinical psychologist, and I was going to do this, and I was going to do that. And she said, yeah, well, let's see if we can just build a few bends into this road because the more options you have, the better life will be. So she did. She, she helped me build in a few options. And as it turned out, I, I wound up with an English and a French major and then, of course, went into advertising, which had nothing to do with either of them. So she prepared you for the bends in the road. The question is, how did you land your first position at age 21 at Shia Day? Why did you select advertising, and how did you pitch yourself to get the position? The best way possible, totally by accident. <laughs> Isn't that how serendipity works? The... Uh, Secretary to the dean had um, an aunt who was a headhunter in Los Angeles. She said, look, you've got to go get a job. Let's go. And so we did. She sent me out on a job interview uh, for a, an executive assistant to replace someone who was pregnant and having a baby. Well, unbeknownst to me, the lady had the baby that morning. And unbeknownst to one of the other ladies who worked at that company who was coming out to interview someone for a media job, I was the only one who showed up. So she thought I was her interviewee, and I thought she was my interviewer. We sat and talked. She said, you know what? You're right for the job. Let me hire you. And I asked for a little bit more description of the job and realized I was at the wrong job, but I was the right fit. So you never told her then that you weren't the candidate that she thought she was speaking with. Oh, I did. 
Oh, I you did, did tell, tell her, her that. Oh, oh, you were honest. And, yep, That's excellent. And, uh, actually, that was not at Chiat Day, and they sent me back to the headhunter, and the headhunter said, she's turned down 13 people who were qualified for the job. Why does she want you? And I said, well, there's a whole lot of things you never asked me about. Let me tell you. And so I did, and I told her a lot about the things that I'd done through Pitzer College, uh, the independent studies programs and things that I'd done. And she said, okay, I know where I'm going to send you. Sent me over to Chiat Day. And after an hour's um, discussion, they said, you know what? We're going to call Mrs. Wagner, and if she says you're really who you are, you're hired. And I was the right fit. And so they hired you. And so they hired me. It's interesting how you really started from the beginning sharing who you are. It's what I have to sell. A lot of people don't recognize that. A lot of people are uncomfortable sharing what they have to sell. Well, if you think about it, everything you do in life is selling whether it's figuring out which restaurant you or your husband and you and your husband are going to go to or which movie or where you're going to live or little decisions, big decisions, it doesn't matter. You have to sell it. If there's something you know you want, you have to sell it. And most of what you have to sell is yourself. So if you are able to put your mind in the place of the other person and say, okay, if I were my husband, what would I be looking for at this point in a movie? And why would I be making that decision? And then you just phrase your answers or your pitch to where you know his head is and well, match it up to what you've yeah, got. Well, you're talking about, Matt, you're talking about having a blueprint. You're talking yes. about understanding the other side. Uh, you're talking about using my right fit method, Mary Beth. That's right. You are our poster woman for the for the right fit method. Unintentionally, but that's true. You must have a point there. Absolutely, you exist. After about a year at Shiat Day, you became the head of the media department. When you pitched an idea to your boss, you gave him three. The one he would love, the one he would hate, the one he would trash. You saved the idea that he would love for last. Did you know which idea was the right fit idea for him? And did he select that idea? Yes, I did. Um, As with any situation, I put my, I had watched him, observed him for a long time, I had a really good idea of the kinds of things that he would like. I also had a really good idea of what was right for that particular account under the circumstances, given all of the um, pieces of information that we had. And so I knew how to package it so that he would listen. But I also knew that if I walked in with only that idea, that he wouldn't buy it just because he wouldn't buy it. There was only one idea. So I brought in the right ones, and or three choices. And Jay was an incredibly intuitive person who knew 
probably within five to ten words whether or not this idea had any merit to it. And he would blow them off in like ten words. No, that's stupid. No, I don't want that. And then when I presented the one that was the right one, he was quiet, which was a really good thing. And he said, yeah, that one. That one has merit. Let's go talk to some people. So he knew the right fit idea. You knew the right fit idea. You sold the right fit idea. You matched. Yes. You left Shia Day to join a small advertising agency, which was subsequently absorbed by Foot, Cone, and Belding. What was the new position, and how did you pitch yourself to get it? I was a whole entire 24 years old. Shiat Day was not going to make me media director, and these people were advertising for a media director. I developed enough of a reputation in the market among the sellers that they talked to these people about them and said, this is who you want. And they kind of didn't really believe that, but they called and asked me to come over. Um, and when I walked through the door, I, I believe me, I looked about 12 years old. I had this baby face. And there wasn't anything anyone could do that made me look much much older than that. And so I walked in and said, okay, look, I know what your eyes see, but close them and just hear what I have to say. Oh, you said that right up front so yeah. that you recognized that's outstanding. You recognized the objection, you confronted it, and then proceeded. Did they chuckle? How did they respond to that? They laughed. Yeah, they had to laugh because there aren't too many people that would have had the chutzpah to do that. And so I sold myself and became um, probably the youngest media director in the history of Los Angeles, certainly at that time, um, and had a great time. You then changed course. You decided that advertising agencies were the wrong fit. Why was that? I had was pregnant and about to have my son. My husband and I both worked at advertising agencies and realized that the typical advertising agency's idea of a week's worth of work included overnights and that that really wasn't going to work. On top of that, where I was by that point, I'd gone from a small, very flexible, fast-moving agency into a very la the largest, stodgiest, agency in Los Angeles. So they weren't exactly flexible. And it wasn't my style. It was not a right fit for me. And when I had my son, I especially did not want to have to be at work from 8 in the morning until 8 at night and an overnight thrown in here or there. I wanted to be able to go watch him play baseball, to be at his PTA meetings, I wanted to be wherever he needed me to be to help him to be the best he could. To do that, I had to have flexibility, so I changed courses completely and went to um, the selling side because no matter where you are in a selling position, if you're any good at it, you're actually your own business and you have a lot of control. I needed that control. You went to CBS Radio? Yes. Tell us about that. And again, please be sure to share the pitch. 
Well, what you have to understand is that at that time, women did not sell. Heck, women didn't even wear pants to work. Ah, okay. When I was at Chiat Day, we had to stage this sort of sit-in, well, rebellion, and we all wore pants to work on the same day because they sent everybody home who wore pants to work to go change into a proper skirt. Boy, what would they have done with Hillary Clinton? Well, exactly. (laughs) And so um, they couldn't send us all home, so we got to wear pants, and we changed what Los Angeles got to wear to work, or at least the ad community. So... um, I I needed that flexibility. I went into um, CBS and I said, look, you need someone who understands what goes on on the other side of that desk. I do. I know how to sell to me. And I was one of the most difficult people to sell to. So if I can sell me, I can sell anyone. I can explain all of this. And finally, I mean, what you basically do is you, you just keep talking to people until one of them has a little spark that goes off in their eyes and you know you've you've made it you've got the hook in and follow through so i did but then you left them uh why did you decide to leave well while it was a small station and a, one that was breaking a lot of ground and I was able to do a lot of really pretty innovative work, introduced a lot of first marketing plans that radio stations had ever been involved in. It was still run by CBS. And there was a startup out there that had heard about me and wanted me. And so I had the opportunity to once again join somebody and something that was innovative um, zigged and zagged when it needed to zig and zag, and was home of the Mavericks. And that was KRLA, correct? Correct. So what happened there? Because I know that you left them and went off to another radio station. Yes, so but that was five years later. Ah, Okay. So it was five years later, but what what transpired at KRLA? Because I expect you learned a lot working there. I did learn a lot working there, and at that point it had just been sold to another large company, actually to one owned by Bob Hope, and I actually got to meet Bob Hope, which was an amazing thing. Ah, tell us about that. He um, put together a group of people who bought KRLA, and decided that they would have a party to invite all of the clients so he could say hello to them and figured that that kind of bonding would be very, very good for selling. And they were right. And so I walked in and walked up to him, um, and he said, Hello, I'm Bob Hope. I said, Yes, yes, I know, and you own me. (laughs) You said that. What did he say when he when you said to him, you own me? He said, how much did I pay for you? <laughs> That's terrific. I said, I don't know, but you got a good price. <laughs> and then I slunk away. That's terrific. So then tell us about your next adventure and how you pitched yourself there. Well, at 
at that point, uh, one of the jobs that was open in the market was for um, the most famous of what's called uh, a national rep. These are people who work for a company that represents about 1,600 radio stations around the country and sells time on them to people in Los Angeles. The man who held that position, because of course it was a man, was going to become the head of something also innovative and new, but owned by the same company, where he and uh, two other people would become the heads of something called Hillier, Newmark, and Wexler. And they would represent stations in the same markets that what was then called McGavern Guild or Interrep um, would. And the man who ran all of this is one of my heroes. His name's Ralph Guild. And he came up with a concept at that point, which was, oh my God, denigrated by everybody, that a, a, a rep could represent more than one radio station in a market. And the only way that the owners would accept that is if they actually worked for sort of different companies. So it was kind of like having different brands. And they just he just did brand extensions and came up with different brands and put them all under the roof of Interrep. So I wanted in. And how did that work out? Oh, I must hear how you pitched yourself for that. (laughs) I just can't wait. So they called me in. And were you still looking very young, or by then your little baby face grew more mature? Well, it was, I didn't look 12 anymore. Thank God. All right. I still got carded. I I got carded up until my 40s. That's amazing. It was just this baby face, this Irish baby face. And so I walked in and said, look, you called me. What can I do for you? And they said, well, I was leaving. And yada, yada. I said, yeah, yeah, I know, because every leading buyer in the market told me. And I think they also told you that I'm who you want. And they said, you get right down to business, don't you? Yeah, that's that's what I like about your style of pitching. So I said, yeah, there's not a whole lot to whining and dining and dancing around at this point. Um, This is what I can do for you. This is what you need. And why don't we just cut a deal? And so they did. You did leave. And I became the highest seller in Los Angeles within six months. Within a year, I was the third highest in the entire company, which included New York, which had three times the budgets we did. Ah. So how long were you there before you went off to Disney? I was there 10 years. But oh, what I actually you were there a did, long time then. Yes, I was, but I wasn't in the same job for those 10 years. What I learned how to do, I want to talk about right fit. When a job stops being the right fit, you pretty much know this is the right place, but this is not the right job. Right. And so I looked for other things that I could do that would let me grow and at the same time be the right fit for me. So I, I did. I became a sales manager. And then about five years into all of that, um, they had come up with something new, which seems to be the theme song of my life, 
And they needed someone who was innovative, who could take it to the next level um, and introduce something we called unwired networks, which just simply allowed one ad agency to buy 1,600 radio stations around the country or 1,200 or 187 or whatever they wanted so that it fit what they were doing, but with just one person doing it, one invoice, and most of the work then fell on us. And it worked out really quite well. And I took what was a, a non-existent department to a 20 million department in two years. And 20 million was about what the largest of our rep firms under that little umbrella build. Two questions. Why did you ultimately leave? And how would you explain to somebody to present yourself so that you're viewed in a new way at the same company? Because many people leave companies not understanding that they don't need to leave. That's all they need to do is to fix the fit by changing positions within the company. Because that's what you did. You fixed the fit. Yes. I fixed the fit. And But going back to Professor Wagner and always keep your options open. Right. You really do need to keep your options open and listen for that knock at the door. My biggest client was the Walt Disney Company. I had managed to sell them on the concept of using radio and using it a certain way. They were quite successful doing it, and they decided that rather than have me sell this to all of the other movie studios, they would bring me on board, shutting that door, but also opening a great door for me. It's Los Angeles. Everybody here wants to work for a studio. I don't care what they say. Everybody here wants to work for a studio. So here I was um, with the opportunity to, to do just that. Now, talk about taking a long time. Oh, my God, these people must have put me through 20 interviews. And at every single one of them, they basically said, you really don't want this job. But at every single one of them, I said, yes, I really do want this job. I really can do this job. And you need to hire me. So they approached you then, Mary Beth? Yes. The okay. woman who was the head of the advertising department, uh, who also was a friend, but uh, and had been a friend for years and years and years, and you never want to go to work for friends, um, convinced me that I should go to work for her even though she was a friend um, and that they really needed the innovative ways that I could resolve problems and find new pathways. And so I did. Um, some of the friends that I made at Disney are still um, some of the people that I have the most respect for in, in any business. I mean, they are marketing geniuses. Some of them were quite weird, and I did put in like two years of what I keep calling hard time. Um, but 
I still have many, many friends today who were at Disney when I was at Disney and who are still at Disney. The president of distribution was one of the guys that I worked with, um, and he wasn't president at, at the time. We, we covered Canada. It was um, one of the territories that was included in what we had to do. And it was, it was great because no one really paid much attention to it, even though it was about 10% of the grosses. And so I was allowed to do all kinds of things there. And inevitably, we would open better than most of the rest of the country. And people would come in and say, what did you do? And Who was I'd your explain. position there exactly? Mine, I was vice president of broadcast media. So how many people did you have reporting to you? For who worked for Disney? One. Who worked at the ad agency that reported to Disney that reported to me? 28. Okay. All right. So now, ultimately, you left Disney and joined KABC. Did they pursue you or did you pursue them? Or was it mutual? Well, it was mutual. Um, I had lunch with the woman who was the general sales manager for the station, and we were talking about a lot of things. And she said, you know, I have an opening and um, for a senior account executive, and had you thought about maybe leaving the movie business? And at that point... Um, I was very happy to leave the movie business because it was a little bit crazy. It wasn't a question of hard work. It was a question of trying to talk to people who twisted words and twisted ideas and never gave you a straight answer. It was very difficult to read people who are more or less unreadable and whose lives are very emotionally and and. Um, furiously involved. Because that's not who you are. No. So you recognized that you basically needed to change the fit, even though obviously you love the job, from what I can hear. Yes. Okay, all right. So now, uh, with KABC, what did you do there? I started as... um, a salesperson and set all kinds of new billing records and then became the sales manager, one of the sales managers. Um, My team set all kinds of new billing records, but mainly some of the things that we did uh, really involved bringing the programming people together with what we wanted to do, um, coming up with what is now called non-traditional revenue resources um, things that wouldn't actually happen in the business for about eight to ten more years, we did then. And it was great. Let's continue to walk in your shoes and peek into your mind. An opportunity appeared which set the stage for you to significantly influence Southern California radio. The president of the Southern California Broadcasters Association, retired. You saw yourself in that role. Why did you want the position, 
and why did they see you as the right fit? For a number of years before Gordon retired, I had actually been working with them. Um, I, I taught media planning at UCLA, and I um, taught radio for one of the trade publications, uh, educational courses. And, and in so doing, um, the SCBA would bring me in to talk to salespeople every so often. And then they hired me to create a sales course and teach it, which was what we called SCBU. So I had been affiliated with the SCBA, and I knew what their job should be, what it should be capable of attaining. And I loved Gordon. Gordon worked for me even after he retired. I'd bring him back once a month to write the newsletter and just to hang out because he was a great, great guy and and a good mentor. Um, But I saw what it could be. And so when he announced that he was retiring, they knew of me. I knew of them. Um, And they formed a committee that would interview some of the hundred and some odd people who applied for the job. They winnowed that down to three of us, and then the three of us were invited to make a presentation to the entire board of directors. And then they would vote on who got the job. So I knew I wanted the job because of my background and because I saw very clearly the need that I don't think anyone else saw and that I fit that package. You created a radio commercial to pitch yourself for the position. Tell us about that. Well, I went to about eight of the biggest clients or agency people in the market and that I, with whom I'd done business over the years and said that I was pitching this job. And some of them looked at me like, why would you do that? And I would explain. And they'd say, you know what, you're perfect for this job. You are perfect for this job. And yes, I'll be glad to lend my voice to it. So we recorded them. My husband, who uh, is a creative director, got one of his friends who has a production studio to mix it, put it together. I made my presentation to them, and then I played my commercial. They laughed and all looked around, and I knew it was mine. Do you remember what they said about you? Actually, I pulled it out and played it this morning. Terrific. Good. I'm glad because we talked about this. Uh, when we spoke yesterday, so I'm eager to hear what is it they said. The um, head of the Hollywood Bowl and the L.A. Philharmonic, with whom I had done a great deal of work, talked about my grasp of the medium and how I always had innovative ideas. The head of the largest agency in Los Angeles um, said that when, or the media director of it, said that when he needed ideas about radio, he always called me. But my favorite was one of the um, premier BMW dealers in the United States, Nick Alexander BMW. And in his commercials, he always ends them with, Nick can't say no. So when I asked him to do this, he said, all right. And he, of course, wrote his own thing and just, said it off the top of his head, and what he said was, Nick can't say no to Mary Beth Garber, and neither should you. 
What a wonderful, succinct statement that said it all. Yeah. He was great. He sits on one of the boards we sit on together. Throughout your career, you play your own game to win without competing. As Warren Buffett says, I can't play the other guy's game. When did you decide to set the standard and compete with yourself? I don't think that was ever a conscious decision. I think that was just always what I did. I I remember when I became a rep and and I was working uh, for Interrep, and somebody said to me, oh, you're going to go call on so-and-so. Well, here are the other people that call on them. And I said, I don't care who they are. Nothing about them is going to change what I do. It's the game I bring that's going to matter. Absolutely correct. And it's just always been how I do things. When I was in speech and debate um, and I competed, I was state champion and national qualifier and all of these kinds of things, state champion twice. Um, What I did was never ask who was in the round against me. I didn't care. It didn't matter what they did. It really only mattered what I did. Absolutely. Because if you started focusing in on other people, that becomes, for you, a distractor. That's right. So you totally focused in on yourself and pitching yourself and setting the standard. And you did that over and over again. Yes. I had really good people who believed in me and reinforced that these were correct decisions and that I was capable of making them. How do you go about creating benchmarks, continuing to raise the bar higher and higher? Well, one of the sayings at Shia Day was, good enough is not good enough, and it never is. I don't know. I, I don't, again, it was nothing I ever consciously did. I just realized that you couldn't stay in the same place. There had to be newer ways to do things. You had to keep up with newer ways to do things. And more than that, you had to be ahead of them. So while what I accomplished here at the SCBA, even in the first five years that I was here, was lauded because nobody had ever done anything like it before, it wasn't good enough. There had to be new ways to do things. I worked with Arbitron to create um, studies and then present those all over the country. Uh, I worked with uh, another branch of Arbitron to look at uh, a new system that was coming out in the way of ratings and then take that around the country and explain it to people, even though I didn't work for Arbitron, but I wanted people to understand it because it would influence what happened with radio. So... You just don't stop. Well, this leads me to my next question, which is, you excel in divergent thinking, always searching for an array of solutions. Tell us about a situation which illustrates the significance of thinking divergently.
there there are a lot of them that have happened in my business, but I have to explain a lot about my business, which would probably be incredibly boring. Um, what I can tell you is most people who are very good at all of this are also very good at finding the right fit staff, and they help make these things happen. So when I do come up with an idea, I call my staff together and say, this is what I think, and listen for their divergent responses. Ah, okay. The ideas that they bring to the table and give them the credibility that they deserve. A lot of the things we've done have not necessarily been my ideas. They've been my people's ideas. But you set the stage for them to yes. think divergently. You welcome right. their divergent thinking and reinforce that. Right. And one of them's worked for me for thir- long, a year longer than I've been here. Ah. Um, one for a year less than I've been here and one for a year and a half less than I've been here. Ah, okay. So you managed to keep together your staff. For years or more, exactly. We found one another early. We realized how to work with one another and that good enough was never going to be good enough. You are the mistress of understanding how the person on the other side of the table thinks. Tell us about the concept you created titled The Virtual Neighborhoods of Radio, which you speak about all over the country. When we did those studies with Arbitron, Arbitron presented me with about 100 slides and about six inches worth of paper. And I looked them through, and I saw a story. And the story made me curious. So we did another study, and I explained to them what I was really looking for this time. And that study reinforced the story that I saw, and the idea then really became born. What I saw was that the average, well, that everybody, really, if you follow Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, we have the need to eat, we have the need to be safe enough to be able to eat, and the other primary need is to be accepted by other people, essentially to be part of a family of some sort. And I expanded that to a neighborhood of some sort. There are a lot of ways of expressing that. Uh, People who wear brands, they're part of a virtual neighborhood. People who uh, are on teams or support teams, they're part of a virtual neighborhood. Well, what I noticed was that radio stations are virtual neighborhoods. And as we did more and more research with Arbitron and as Arbitron's methods changed, we discovered that the average person spends maybe three-quarters of the time that they spend with radio with only one or two radio stations. They go back to the same ones day after day after day after day. And they wind up knowing more about the DJs on that station or the kind of music that they play or the kinds of things that they talk about than they probably know about their spouses or their best friends or their dog. There's an emotional connection that happens, and essentially what each radio station has done is created a virtual neighborhood in which we can live. And we do. And we have done so from the day they put a microphone and a phone into uh, a booth and put a DJ on the air. 
what is the impact of your virtual neighborhoods concept on Southern California radio? Well, I came back from all of these studies and discussing it with the Arbitron people and began presenting it to each of the radio stations, not just the salespeople, but the program directors and, in a lot of cases, the on-air people, and explained how the constituents or the listeners really looked at and interacted with the radio station, what the expectations they brought, the needs that they brought, which was essentially just once again saying, okay, put yourself in the other person's shoes, think the way they think, what do you have that they need? What do you have that they want, and how do you position it so they understand that? So that's what I did, and person after person would say, aha. In fact, one of the radio stations, uh, I was explaining how these days 74% of women leave work without having a clue as to what's for dinner. They started a program called What's for Dinner. They ran it at 4.45 every day, every work day, and wound up selling it for, they made almost $2 million off of that program. So what you did was you stimulated their divergent thinking abilities. That's right. Because the Giving them the data and the concept. Now, it's terrific. How can we apply, that is our listeners can apply, this concept to ourselves, whether it's at work or at home? What are your thoughts? It really is a life concept. Think about your family. Your family is a virtual neighborhood where you work. The, the people you let into your daily circle at work, they're part of your virtual neighborhood or you're part of theirs. These are things that we set up that reinforce and um, validate who we are and will accept us into them, much like... If, if you were to walk into a room where there were five sets of conversations going on um, and you would, you would immediately look at them and say, okay, I wouldn't even begin to talk to those people. I don't want to be seen with those people. But those people look interesting. You'd go over and start talking to them, although you may not even talk to them. You'd just sort of stand there, and if they accepted you into the group, you'd be part of the conversation. It, it's almost like watching a movie when you go to a movie, you're for an instant part of a virtual neighborhood of an audience that has decided they wanted to see this movie. They wanted to be a part of the world it was going to create for however long it was going to create it. When you walk out the door, you're still part of that virtual neighborhood, and if you come across somebody you've seen in that theater, you'll talk about it. It's a way we have of bonding, and it is the most basic of human needs. Did you use the virtual neighborhoods concept at Disneyland to orchestrate a record attendance on Radio Day? Oh, yes. We needed to raise money. I wanted to find a way that the, the radio DJs could reach out to the community and make a very big splash, and at the same time get the hugs from the listeners that they really needed, and that Disneyland got the benefit of all of this. So I went to them and presented the concept of bringing not one, not two, not even three DJs to the park on the same day, 
but bringing 40 DJs to the park on the same day and putting them around at various different attractions uh, where they could kind of take part in a lot of them. Uh, For example, one of the DJs decided he wanted to be on the Jungle Cruise and he wanted to do the spiel, which, of course, Disney made a real person go with or a real employee go with him and keep the spiel close. But uh, and, And the line to get on his canoe went on for 300 feet. They had to keep him there. He was only supposed to be there two hours. They had to keep him for an hour and a half longer just to be able to get everyone in that line to get on his canoe. And they turned away a number more. It was a way of saying, this is your virtual neighborhood. We're going to invite them to Disneyland where they can share and see you and hug you and get photos with you and be able to tell you how much they like you and how much you really meant to them in their lives. And it worked to the point where Disney, there wasn't a way to move at Disneyland that day. My husband came about 11 o'clock. We started at 8. It took him an hour to get through the gate. Oh, my. that long. Now, I know you're planning a big event shortly at Universal Studios where you're going to be using the same concept. Can you tell us briefly about that? This is slightly different. Um, Universal is a smaller venue than Disneyland, and so, but Universal was really clever about it, and they said, you know, what we'll do is create things for your DJs to do that play into our theme, which is the 13 days of Grinchmas. So they came up with four places that we could put the DJs. One is to read the Grinch that stole Christmas. So, for example, we have Dr. Laura, um, who's going to be there and is going to be dressed up like Cindy Lou Who, and she's going to read the Grinch that stole Christmas, and then pose for photos and talk to people and then go back and read it again. She'll be there for a couple of hours. We have um, John of John and Ken from one of the biggest of the talk stations in the marketplace who's going to be there with his three sons, and they're going to build Grinchmas snowmen. Can you tell us the date of the event, uh, Mary Beth? It's going to spread over four days. It begins on Saturday, December 19th. It runs between 10 and 4 each day through Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And all kinds of, de- there are 40-some-odd DJs who are going to be there. Uh, some very, very big names will be there. And they'll all be talking about it on the radio. So, And, of course, it's also on your website, right? Could you give us that uh, address? www.scba.com. .com, as in Southern California Broadcasters Association. And it's .com, not .org. .org takes you to South Carolina. Okay. Many people predict the death of newspapers and radio, believing that we rely on the Internet. What do you believe? The Internet opened a whole new world for radio. And unlike newspapers and television, which did not fit the format of the Internet, All radio had to do was turn your computer into another radio. All we had to do was stream our audio. So it began opening a new world, and then as each radio station developed websites, it it became another way for people to hug us, to get to us. 
more and more doors into these virtual neighborhoods. And that is how people use them. It's just been amazing. Probably one of the statistics that nobody knows about radio is that more people listen to radio now than ever have before. A new, stat- uh, new survey just came out, and 236 million people listen to radio every single week, and that's just people over the age of 12. Your personal life. You've been married to Stephen for 38 years. Yes. Why was he the right fit man to marry? Well, he knew he was the right fit man before I did. We Smart were Smart man. <laughs> we were in a little theater group trying out for picnic, the play picnic. And both of us got into the play. And unbeknownst to me, he had said to the guy next to him, I'm going to marry her. And he had no idea who I was. Well, he just heard me try out for it, and that was about it. So we wound up talking to one another, going out every single night after rehearsals, and just talking till four in the morning um, about our lives and what we wanted to do and who we were. And it was really just amazing. So we got married um, two and a half months after we met and three and a half weeks after our first date. But you shared a lot in common. I mean, it was clear about the match. Am I correct? Yes. Once I heard him talk about himself and his life and his ideas, we were at a director's birthday party that was impromptu. We were thrown together and sat next to one another and we were the youngest people there so the older people were asking us a lot of questions and I discovered that his answers were very similar to mine that his values were very similar to mine and he became a fascinating person to me and has remained so for 38 years your dad spoke to both of you before you married What did he say about his military career? That's picking up on what we talked about at the beginning of the show. Yes. That was when my father announced that he was sorry he couldn't come pick me up when I had wound up being stranded in Europe after I had done this eight-month independent study for Pitzer College uh, and wound up in the wrong city in the wrong airport and stuck in Europe for about three weeks with almost no one knowing where I was but my father. Well, he couldn't come get me, it turns out, he was explaining, because his files hadn't all closed. And I asked what that meant, and he said, well, I was in military intelligence, and until all your files closed, you can't leave American soil because you could compromise somebody's mission. And that was the first time I knew that my father was in military intelligence. How old and then were you? I was 25. It's amazing. 25. And then, of course, everything clicked into place. Oh, that's why we were in Spain for two weeks. And he explained that most of what he did was kind of like uh, Radar did in MASH. He, we had planes we shouldn't have had according to treaties, and then you couldn't bring the parts through Bremerhaven. You kind of had to sneak them in the back door. And that's what he did. He arranged all, all of the things like that. But I also found out one of the other things he did 
was to create the railroad that took people from behind the Iron Curtain out. But he never told me about that. He never talked much about any of it. I wonder why he decided to tell you at that point. Do you, do you know, do you have a feeling about that? Because, I mean, he could have never told you. He could have never told me, but I think he was trying to let my husband know that he had been a good father and a good caretaker and that he was now turning that over to my husband. Oh, oh. You have a grown son, Greg. Yes, who works in the radio business. When he was young, you had to juggle your job and your son. Tell us what happened when he was four years old and the sitter did not arrive. Well, the bane of the existence of any working mother is that the housekeeper or the babysitter doesn't arrive and there you are. What are you going to do? Fortunately... Um, I I had a a schedule that day that included um, selling something to a a woman who was a buyer who was kind of a friend. And I knew she'd probably understand, so I told my son to pack up his stuff and to come with me that we were going to go on a business call. And he was supposed to sit there very quietly, and if he was a very good boy, then at the end of it, um, if I sold it all, then I would take him to McDonald's and he could have anything he wanted. So we went in, and she saw us, and she thought it was cute that he was there, and he sat down in his little corner and did his stuff. And I was pitching her on why she should be buying the number of stations that I wanted her to buy when all of a sudden this little voice pipes up and says, Would you please buy from my mommy so we can go to McDonald's? I'm hungry. And She she is a clone of you. Yes. It's terrific. I love this story. I think it's fabulous. Well, she cracked up and she said, okay, you can have it. Go to take him to McDonald's. <laughs> the Los Angeles Business Journal interviewed you and asked you to name your heroes. You talked about your husband as the real hero. Why is that? He truly is. My husband has had a disease for about 17 years, one that usually kills people after about five. And he's managed to fight the disease on every level you could imagine um, over all of these years. It's, it's one that destroys your red blood cells so that you have no oxygen going to your organs and your brain and things like that. And you have to get transfusions. And his, his life was becoming very transfusion-dependent But he managed to get enough um, different protocols. And, oh, my God, he had to fight with insurance companies. He had to – but he did it, and he persevered, and he survived until the point where he could get a bone marrow stem cell transplant this last February. And it's just amazing. Uh, he, He almost did not make it through that. Um, It's a process where they completely destroy your immune system in order for the new bone marrow to come in and take over. And he got an infection. And so they put him into ICU, 
and intubated him. They put him on a ventilator, and they said, we don't know if we can keep him alive long enough for these stem cells to grow and for the bone marrow, the new bone marrow, to take over and save his life because if he doesn't get something that can fight this infection, there isn't anything we can really do for him. That was six days into it. It usually takes about 12 to 14 days minimum for the bone marrow to um, engraft. And on day eight, it began engrafting. And it was just a miracle. What I think is amazing is the fact that you told me about his spirits, that throughout all these years he's very upbeat and positive and uh, has not been in any way, sense, shape, or form uh, a disturbance. When he was told what was wrong and what was likely to happen. He did not accept that. In fact, we fired that doctor because we called him Dr. Death. Because uh, he said, you know, don't make any long vacation plans. It was that depressing. And he said, no, the way we're going to do this is we can't change the diagnosis, but we can change the attitude and we can be hopeful. And that's what he has always been. And even at his lowest, when he had no energy to do anything, he never complained, and he never threw that burden onto anyone else. He, he was always so careful about keeping that burden to himself and trying to keep it off of me and off of everyone else around him. His attitude was always good and hopeful and just caring, just amazing. When he finally woke up after 30 days on life support, I just looked at him and said, thank you so much for wanting to survive. And it was just amazing to me that he fought all the way through, because if he hadn't, he could have died any time. They expected him to, but he didn't. And I believe that's why he's lived so many years. (laughs) I think so, and that's why he's my hero. Mary Beth... You are a win-without-competing woman. You are soaked in passion. You know your core identity. You compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher. You understand right fits. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You have mastered the art of the pitch. You think outside the box. Thank you for joining me today. Success on your upcoming event at Universal Studios. Thank you, Dr. Barrow. It was a pleasure. My pleasure as well. The type of pitches that you shared with our audience will never be forgotten. Reflecting back on my 2009 interviews... Here are a few memorable moments from my perspective. Celebrity biographer and Pulitzer Prize nominee Ann Edwards shared her pain when she talked about her gut-wrenching experience in trying to decide what she should disclose about Judy Garland from Judy's private papers. 
queen of the vampire novel, Sherilyn Kenyon, announced that her obsession with wearing black even extended to her black polished finger nail tips and that her husband believed that all women wear black polished fingernail tips not recognizing that the standard is white. The authority on musical theater, Stephen Citron, sets an extraordinarily high standard for French food. When he owned an inn with his wife, Anne Edwards, he refused to serve the French dessert, Marron Glacé, which is vanilla ice cream with chestnuts in a lovely sauce. He refused to serve it with chocolate ice cream, telling the guest that if he ate it with chocolate ice cream, he would become very ill. The guest promptly left the inn. I will share more memorable moments on Wednesday, January 13th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which will be our first 2010 show. I want to thank my loyal listeners. Because of you, Win Without Competing is consistently named Best in Our Category. As the show's producer, I am delighted that we are frequently a today's pick, which includes today's broadcast. Thanks to my assistant, Marissa Frickman, the fast-thinking show engineer who knows how to solve unforeseen problems quickly. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. To listen to our archive shows, either visit Blog Talk Radio or go to drbarrow.com and click on the show description that interests you. To learn more about the Right Fit Method, my book, Win Without Competing, and me as a professional speaker, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarro.com and for search services barrowglobal.com Remember this trigger tip Walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing Happy holidays and goodbye for now This is Dr. Arlene author Win Without Competing professional speaker for the Right Fit Method, founder and CEO 
Barrow Global Search, Inc.